Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Did you vote for Brexit but feel like nothing has yet changed? And feel angry that Britain hasn't yet built 400-foot-high walls to block out the rest of the world and the sun? Are you slightly scared about what might happen to the country, so seek solace in pretending that if you hark back to the olden days of blue passports and pounds and ounces, then everything will be worth it? Well, look no further, as for just £3 plus postage, packaging and VAT, we'll send you some homemade sewage to dump on your nearest beach to return it to the proper British state it was in before the bloody EU interfered. Clean European beaches? No thanks, we're British. And there's nothing more British than seagulls being sick and getting a rash from the sea. Just get your increasingly useless credit card ready and call 0800 Pointless Desperate Nostalgia and receive your steaming turd today. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week I'm recording this while sitting on the floor and wearing a burkini. Not for any political reasons, it's just that my chair is broken and I forgot to put a wash on. Um, I'm sure many of you have been thinking since we returned, Tiernan, the people voted for a Brexit. Along with blue passports to match the depression we'll all have in a post-EU recession and grocers selling things only in ounces so they all sound like drug dealers, why can't your podcasts emulate Britain's sovereignty by only being available on wax cylinder and by being delivered to us by a British carrier pigeon? Well, that is a good question, and thank you for asking it. But sadly, such is the nature of this podcast, I would only want to use an ethical pigeon courier company, which is quite costly. So instead, not wanting to demean this desperate attempt at reliving the good old days that the media are having, I will be releasing this podcast as a strain of smallpox in different cities around the country as soon as I can. This week's show, Like a Virgin Train, is so ram-packed that half of it is sitting on the floor. There's further Brexit fallout, uh, a look at foreign aid, and I'm very pleased to say uh, this week's show has an interview with um, brilliant comedian uh, and political columnist Frankie Boyle. Um, and hello to any new listeners who've arrived at this due to this week's guest, and thanks as always to all of you who put yourself through listening to this every single week because you obviously hate your ears. Um, thanks too for your iTunes reviews and comments. Please, please, please keep them coming. They 
they are as always very welcome uh, and I've had a couple of really nice emails uh, this week and loads of posts to the new Facebook group which are great even though I still don't understand what the Facebook group is or why it exists I really really hate Facebook I've spent so long narrowing down my friends in real life there is definitely no way I want to come to your event random person I can't remember from school um, but look if you do want to join the group uh, it seems to be a much better way to have discussions about things um, and kind of uh, get some actual input from you guys uh, so do check out facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash parpole bro uh, and hopefully over time there'll be even more stuff in there and I'll understand what it is um, also as promised uh, a very proper plug this week for my brand new stand up special which is finally out after years um, it was recorded in January so it was a little bit before the whole world went on fire and as thus is probably only about 85% topical uh, or relevant anymore but the 15% you can kind of view as in enjoyable historic nostalgia you know like blue passports or smallpox it's also uh, only about three quid ish it has to be done in dollars because the website I'm really sorry um, but you can stream or download it from my website tnanduyeb.co.uk um, or tnanduyeb.vhx.tv so check out either of those and please go and do that and enjoy it um, every single penny that uh, me and director Ben Hilton make from it uh, is going to go towards being able to film another one in the future so uh, please do get it contribute and uh, enjoy right um, first things first on today's podcast here are some things that you may have missed do you remember that guy Dave you know Dave yeah, it was a little while ago, but if I recall, he did things like, you know, leave his daughter in a pub and probably have sex with a pig's head. Oh yeah, and he was in charge of the country till he ballsed it all up and ran away. Do you remember? Well, it seems that despite spam sculpture, David Cameron no longer being Prime Minister, like all good supervillains, he's still managing to ruin things from beyond the political grave. Firstly, it seems that in the final year of working for him, David Cameron's special advisers received a 24% pay increase worth about 15 grand, or as you might like to put it, the annual salary of someone on the not actually living wage. Because, you know, what better way to deal with times of austerity, pay freezes for civil service workers and economic uncertainty than to let all of your mates have even more money, and for some of them, peerages, for essentially giving you terrible advice on how to continually screw over everyone else since 2010. Special advisors, or SPADs, which is a portmanteau that in itself sounds like an insult, you massive SPAD, uh, they're people who are appointed by the government seeming because they've done something to earn it, you know, like conveniently go to the same school as the Prime Minister, or, you know, other genuine hard-working reasons like that. And then they support the government while supposedly reinforcing the political impartiality that the civil service has. They're very useful, you know, at resigning and taking the blame when the minister they work for has completely and utterly screwed up, a la Jeremy Hunt. Or, for another example, in the case of former Labour spad Damien McBride, uh, they're very good at resigning when they set up a website just to slur the opposition with sex scandal gossip, but then accidentally get found out. Oops. Amazingly, David Cameron recently mocked Labour for rehiring McBride and spoke out several times about Labour's use of spads under Gordon Brown's government. Although I'm guessing maybe that was just because he felt that none of them were being paid enough. I assume Dave won't resurface just to back his decision to give his spads tons of taxpayers' money, but I bet if he did, he'd just say that they advised him to. And with a 24% increase and a peerage in the bag, they'll probably say whatever he wants. A total bunch of spads. The next bit of legacy that David Cameron has, in the way that the UK has a habit of only finding terrible things out about people once they're no longer able to be responsible for it, involves his promise of extra free childcare of up to 30 hours a week. 
This is one of the few promises in the Conservatives' last election manifesto that they didn't U-turn on within about five minutes of being elected. No, instead they ploughed ahead with it despite no sensible methods of making it work. Not that you'd ever have thought that the Conservatives know what childcare is in the first place. You know, I mean, only ever seeing their children during the summer holidays, or when they have to, or in Theresa May's case, when they're brought to her house so she can use her evil mirror to steal their youth. Originally, the Conservatives stated that 630,000 three- to four-year-olds would benefit from the free childcare. And then they had to think about it and revise that down to just 600,000 three- to four-year-olds, and then just 390,000, and currently it looks like actually it's about 50,000 that will benefit, if any. And, due to such an incredible lack of funding for childcare, many nurseries are going to be left hugely underfunded by the scheme, and, as a result, are going to have to charge parents for the free service anyway. So yeah, it's a free service that costs money. Brilliant. And I think that perfectly sums up David Cameron's time as Prime Minister, doesn't it? Getting nothing for far, far too much something. The Labour leadership campaign sleepwalks on and there have been several hustings now that are so repetitive you may as well just record one and watch it on repeat for the same effect. Highlights include Owen Smith making yet another ill-advised statement, this time a joke about the size of his penis, uh, which he then immediately retracted, which I guess gives you a good insight into his love life. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn said in a statement about improving arts funding that he didn't consider himself wealthy, even though he's on just under 150 grand a year. Though I guess while there is a lot of money, it's probably counteracted by his judgement being so poor. But in announcing some actual policies, Jeremy Corbyn this week proposed a new bill of digital rights in, as he said, an attempt to democratise the internet, proving he definitely doesn't read his app replies on Twitter or he really wouldn't bother trying. The bill would get high-speed broadband to even the most remote parts of the country, allowing them too to see just how shitty people can be online. Some of the bill does sound great though, such as the broadband rollout, uh, but also uh, a free-to-use online learning service for the National Education Service, um, a push for voting online, and open-source licensing for publicly funded computer programmes, which all sounds great. But there is also a pledge for a digital citizen passport, which would, as it says in the brief, be a voluntary service to give British citizens a secure and portable identity when interacting with public services online which sounds a little bit like exactly the sort of thing Theresa May and the GCHQ wanted to roll out. Only, at least with Jeremy's version, you get a choice if you want your internet movement spied on. Hey, do you fancy us tracking your every single move and constantly monitoring you for possible terrorist terms? Ah, do you know what? That sounds great fun. Sign me up. Uh, I can't see anyone doing that. A little bit of an odd one. Plus, I'm also not sure if it's going to go down with anyone that actually voted Brexit. I mean, will the digital passports even be blue? Plans to make more cuts across NHS services in England are being made because really, the best way to help a struggling, underfunded service seems to be to just slowly kill it off and end its suffering, according to the Department of Health anyway. The plans will be signed off by October and will involve closing acute services in one out of three hospitals in an area. Acute services aren't the ones that look nice, I should say, or wear a bow and bring you cupcakes, uh, but instead acute means specialist treatments for people whose illness or injuries can't be dealt with by GPs. So stroke victims, diabetic care, respiratory illnesses and so on. Many hospitals are just going to have a 20% reduction in beds too. So just think about it. If you're recovering from a stroke, you're only going to have to trek for a few hours in your numb, dizzy condition. And when you get there, you're unlikely to be able to get a lie down to deal with it. It's a very bizarre way of getting a more efficient and cost saving service when it's just going to cause longer waiting times overall and worse treatment for everyone. I mean, thank goodness the Department of Health aren't working as actual doctors. 
or anyone in some sort of serious accident would just be treated by giving them less and less oxygen and blood until they were thrown down the body chute to the morgue to save money and time. So it's a bit of a different interview this week. Uh, I've been very, very lucky over the last few weeks to support, uh, as Wikipedia hilariously calls him, pessimistic and often controversial comedian Frankie Boyle. It's the third time I've had the pleasure of of being uh, one of his support acts. Um, And I thought after his increasingly popular satirical columns for The Guardian, uh, his stand-up show sort of becoming ever more heavily political in tone and loads and loads of backstage chats that we've had uh, about the state of the world and Noam Chomsky and all sorts of other uh, polit- uh, political areas. Um, I just thought it'd be really, really nice to get Frankie on the show. Um, so what I should say is, uh, firstly, it's not like previous interviews where I go on one specific subject for a while. Uh, it's not like Frankie is an expert in anything particularly apart from comedy, obviously. Uh, so this is more of a general chat about politics. Um, and it's not a comedy chat. It's a mostly serious one uh, about Frankie's views on current political issues, you know, such as media censorship. Uh, We talk a bit about Scottish politics and a number of other things. As always, uh, with my complete inability to record anything properly, there are some sound issues. And in fact, rather than apologise, I thought I'd just embrace it with a new mini jingle. Excuses, excuses. So this week's excuses about sound recording are... It was recorded at the always brilliant Phoenix in Cavendish Square in London. Many, many thanks to them for letting me chat to Frankie there before our show. Uh, However, as you'll notice uh, and know now from this podcast, I am stupidly loud. And despite me having the microphone far, far away from my face and right instead by Frankie's face, he speaks really quietly. And somehow I still sound like it's basically sitting in my mouth. Um, The excellent Mark Struthers, who's worked on this podcast before, uh, spent time amplifying Frankie's bits. But that does mean whenever he talks, you can hear the aircon in the back. Um, Oh, and stupidly, we both had drinks with lots of ice in it. So I hope that adds to the ambience uh, for you. Uh, Maybe don't listen if you're very thirsty or you're scared of ice or you're scared of drinks or you're scared of me or Frankie in which case why are you listening right here is Frankie enjoy all right so I thought I'd start by asking you um I've I've seen your material for ages and you've always been political but it seems like you've become more political in the last couple of years sort of in your material but also in all your guardian columns and everything um has there been something specific that happened that decided to make you be more sort of publicly outspoken or is there something that, that's changed? I think it's just generally the world ending. <laughs> <laughs> A sense of urgency has developed. Um, I also think though as well, like, I guess people would remember me from like panel shows and things like that. A lot of that stuff was edited out. I remember when I used to do stand-up before that on telly. Like, so, you know, right about the time there at Quar. I was doing a lot of stand-up about the record. I don't think it did my career any favours. But I think people just know what they see in edits. I think, you know. Um, but that's, I mean, that's the modern world, isn't it? People base, people have quite strong opinions based on very little information. And I've got lots to it. Yeah, so is that, I mean, I suppose that helps kind of with your columns. They can't be, well, they can be edited, I guess. I know The Guardian's taken some bits out of what you said, but yeah, I guess it's slightly it. more scope for expression in those than in... You would think. Actually, like I would say, their compliance was tighter than BBC Two. Really? Yeah. So, like, I stopped working for them in the end because I just couldn't get stuff in there. It's, it's not so much that as that, like the edit process just takes so long. So you write them in a day, and then you're editing them for a day, like basically arguing with someone, 
<laughs> jokes. And then, like, it would always like, get cleared, and then they'd phone you up just before it was due to go out. We can't say menopause. Charlotte's seen menopause, and Charlotte doesn't like menopause. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, for fuck. I mean, you know. So I had to stop. But I also find when I stop doing something, I don't think of anything about it anymore. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if you have that, but like, I stopped doing stand-up for a bit. I don't wander around thinking of stand-up jokes every day. Right. And when I stopped writing the columns, I just stopped thinking of column-type jokes. Right. And yeah, it seems like my, my mind moves on a little quicker than my right. rest of me. And is that, I'm guessing in a way, that's probably, if you're not thinking about column-type stuff, you're, does that mean you get to ignore the news a little bit? And Nah, not really. No, man. not really. I fucking actually want the Olympics then, just so the news comes back. I mean, yeah, I was thinking that the other so day, yeah. I'm fucking scrolling through pictures of like swimming caps and <laughs> people in midair, and I've no idea what the fuck's going on. Just trying to find out what's going on in Syria or something. I really am someone's dad. That is quite... But it's like you were saying, that the uh, as you joked at the beginning, it feels like the end of the world. I'm kind of finding the news is really important at the moment because I, I want to know when things are going to be better <laughs> you know just hoping that something they're never going to be better is this, that generally uh, every every month this year has been the hottest uh, month on record so it's got hotter and hotter every month and uh, we're going to fry we needed to stop the atmosphere in about 1958 right and we've not done it and uh, you know here we are I think there'll be a point where like you know, like you see on TV a Nobel Prize scientist being interviewed and he's just smoking? It's just like the scientist who lives next door has stopped taking his bins out. Like oh, they know. I'm dying. Just going to give up. Is it, well, before, I mean, we've got, what have we got, about 50 years? Yeah. I mean, there's a potential for a world leader to end it before that. Okay. I mean, I'm only carelessness. I, I think there's... I think there's like every chance that we could turn it around, you know. Mm. It'd have to be some kind of epiphany, but you know, it's a great line in R.D. Lang. I forget which book it is, but he talks about you know pessimism and stuff. He says because I made some mad run about how dare you say that any child that's just been born won't be the you know person to save humanity. And he says this is like a, a real rejection of what propels the human spirit. You know, I don't think he's right. Because I was going to ask because like. Uh I remember emailing you the other day. I think it was about that charity gig, and you went, I, "I've got no hope for these people." But, but like you're you're quite a big uh, Noam Chomsky fan, aren't you? Or you sort of read, yeah, right. so, well, you've quoted him to me quite a few times. But everything that he's against—capitalism, neoliberalism, mainstream media—seems to be incredibly prominent in the world right now. So, do you think? I mean, how do you feel about the current state of things? It feels incredibly scary to me. Is it, yeah, I mean, it's the organising system of the world. Um, so. It's everywhere. It's the structure. So when we talk about structural racism or you know institutional racism, those are the institutions of neoliberalism and capitalism and things like that. Um, yeah, I think it's very dangerous. I think there's like potential for nuclear war. People have <laughs> thought themselves into some really strange place where they imagine that 1970s Russia is going to step through a stargate. We might need. Um, submarines that we don't have the fucking launch codes for to defeat them um, and there's environmental problems but it's also like um, you know the chance there'll be another huge financial crash I mean our system's completely unstable our banks are um, stable uh, and uh, you know there's other things that we haven't prepared for you know there's a lot of people think that we're overdue for a large viral event you know that's the sort of thing that a reasonable species might have been taking steps to 
Right. Then, um, and instead we're focused on nonsense. We're, well, we're focused on, like, people are focused on greed. We're led probably by psychopaths. Um, and, uh, I, don't, I don't know that we're doing anything to address <laughs> major problems at the moment. Do you, do you think there's anyone that, that is, though? I mean, it really feels like uh, most of the political parties are very similarly minded. Um, anyone that isn't similarly minded is sort of pushed down very quickly. You know, is, is there anyone that's... Without getting too fucking Russell Brand about it, I just think it's kind of thing of like we're just trapped in that paradigm of like party politics and to and fro in and, and you know the parliamentary system and you know people who are quite alternative worry themselves about you know whether you know uh, you know Jeremy Corbyn should have the support of the parliamentary party and all that. If you were to design a machine to use up the good energy of people, the the activist energy of people, um, it would look a lot like the Labour Party. If you were, you know, an architect of austerity and you were fearing another financial collapse, you were fearing obviously the last series of time movement in Britain, and you designed something in which to entrap the energy of activists, it would look a lot like the Labour Party, you know? And I sympathise with Corbyn a lot. I think he gets treated terribly in the media, um, and more generally as well. But uh, at the same time, you know, getting a lot of people with goodwill and energy into drafty labour meeting halls where they don't understand the um, the rules is not maybe the most fantastic use of energy. I think like you were saying it feels like things are kind of stuck in this uh, forever kind of parliamentary game uh, that they have. And my concern is that even if Corbyn wins in September, I don't think it's going to, it doesn't feel like it's going to change much. Well, he might be eaten alive by the bond markets. I mean, that's sort of, yeah. sort of like the, one of our problems is like discussions can't really ever progress to um, the medium term. You know, and if you look at like yeah, the right across the world, I mean, things are always thought of in the medium term. In fact, those people are called medium term planners, the people who do the uh, planning in the United States. So what do you Foreign mean, policy, what's medium term? What's, what do you mean by that? They sort of mean like, how do they control resources going forward? So they don't have like, they don't have like a long-term plan because right. obviously like what they're doing is going to set the planet on fire but they always have a kind of medium-term uh, strategy for, for everything um, and that's that's what they refer to in the literature medium-term plans right but um, I, I think you know there's, there's always that with the Tories there's always like oh, what do we do if this uh, referendum fucks up what do we do if this leader uh, has to go, you know, there's always that kind of 10 years down the line we're still shoveling money to mm. our corporate backers. We're still privatising things, we're still moving forward with a very similar agenda. In fact, their agenda is very similar to Thatcher and there's been very few bumps on the road if you look at them as, as an ideology. Um, and on the left, it's like, you know, the minute you start uh, theorising about anything, being, what if Jeremy Corbyn got in? Many of you have you even heard that question asked? You, no, no, no. Have anyone discuss what would happen? I mean, possibly there would be some financial backlash where you know the, the hedge funds, the bond markets, tried to crash the British economy. I mean, some people think that happened in Ireland, but you know, we do need to think about things a bit more strategically. Yeah. So the, is that? I mean, because you were a, a kind of. Um, you were, you were you were for independence in Scotland, weren't you? When that was uh, when that vote came around, is that uh, I mean, 
if that happens again, will you be for it again? I mean, part of me personally, I sort of thought, get out of it, escape, escape the kind of UK system. But was that your reasons for it? Or? It's just like the Poseidon adventure, it's just like Gene Hackman going to go and <laughs> And nobody believed you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do think that just because like the paradigm of British politics is so uh, corrupt and, and based on such horrendous things that we should get as far away from it as possible. But obviously, um, one of the problems in Scotland is there's um, a huge lot of cultural difference between people. There's a lot of cultural cross currents, and there's no kind of shared mainstream culture. There is a little bit. It's all very anodyne, right? So it's, you know, right. you can point to ten things that you would say, "Oh yeah, that kind of is Scottish mainstream culture." But like, they don't make any TV programs. They don't make, you know, if you're going to try and find something that told you what life is like as a Muslim in Glasgow. I mean, you, you're maybe down to scouting like blogs or something. Right. Um, you know, so so they need some kind of cultural revival that tells people why they have shared interests, that tells people why they have a common bond by nature of the country that they're in and the, the type of people that they are. And um, there's not only is there not that, but there's also no push for that. Uh, and, you know, you see it in you see it very clearly manifested in things like people think other people's reasons for voting for or against independence are illegitimate. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had friends who voted against independence because their family had been in the British Army and Canada had fought in the Second right. War and all that stuff. And you know, people on the side are like, wow, it's just you know, ridiculous. It's not ridiculous, it's perfectly legitimate. If that's part of your identity, mm-hmm. that's part of your family background, uh, then you know, you've got to make some kind of offer to those people that explains why they should vote for independence. And the, the reason that offers weren't made to those various groups, and there's lots of them, we're talking about dozens of different groups here, um, is that the offers would, by their very nature, have to be quite radical. You know, so right. maybe your offer to those people has got to explain, look, the country that your granddad fought for isn't there anymore. The values being presented by that country are probably opposed yeah. to the things that your granddad fought for. You know, and, and nobody wants to be radical. Everybody wants to kind of, um, you know, s- slide through and offer a slightly different version of um, what's gone before. I mean, if you look at the SNP's actual proposals in the white paper, I mean, do you, do you know what they're... I mean, they almost never got to this because there was so much kind of project fear and they were just on, on the back foot answering questions all the time. Right. But the main economic proposals involved getting rid of... Uh, all airport duty, right? So you'd have more flights coming into Scotland, right? And so you'd have you'd have more tourism, you'd have more kind of like mid-market golf hotels, and they were going to pay for uh, childcare for uh, I forget if it was like right the way down, but I mean certainly they would pay for uh, childcare to like um, for I think an extra two years or something. But basically, they've released a lot of women into the workforce. Right. Um, and the idea was that they would get much more tax revenue doing that, which they would. Yeah. But I mean, they get much more tax revenue by making Scottish mothers leave their children to go and change sheets. Manipulating Scottish air and yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. You know, so it's, that's not really a that's not really a, a progressive plan for how the Scottish economy should go. Yeah, I mean, but that's, with Scottish independence, it felt like the vote very much went the way, same way Brexit did, you know, it was all just scaring people about what 
you know, what might happen if you go one way or the other, rather than any positive hope, rather than saying, vote this, this is a positive thing that could come from it, you know. Totally, I mean, that was a huge factor in Brexit, I think, was that the, the government were overconfident because they managed to do a project for you in Scotland, and they actually overstated it, I think, in Brexit. They went too far with this sort of emergency budget and all that kind of stuff, and people just didn't buy it. And uh, SNP doing a reasonable job in Scotland now. I mean, they've, I mean, they've done a reasonable job since they were in the, since, since they've been in charge. I mean, Sam yeah. did a reasonable job as well. Um, and, you know, they, those are progressive ideas behind some of the things they're doing, but they're quite centralist, I think, and they've now got, they've kind of got some of the problems of labour without them kind of manifesting themselves yet, right. which is that they've got a a base that is surely to the left of its leadership, um, but they're showing a kind of party discipline that Labour doesn't have. But it, it does. It does feel from an from an outsider or from the English point of view, I suppose that that like Labour have got no hope in Scotland ever again. No, you know, it's mad as well because no one talks about that really. But like, you know, the various reasons they get thrown up by these kind of Labour campaign coordinators of why they did badly and. Scotland, you know, it's literally things like because we we went anti-Trident or something. You're just like, no, you campaigned with Tories. You stood in the newspaper yeah. and titles, and that's just the one thing you can't do. And also, I mean, there's like an intransigent kind of Tory vote in Scotland. You'll always get like a kind of twenty percent Tory vote anyway. Yeah, and you're never getting those people. So all you've done is just kind of lose everybody else to the SNP, and they're gone. And they must not be. Yeah, well, because that, that was that funny thing I was sort of reading when they go, oh, Tories have done really well in Scotland. You think, no, they've done exactly the same as they've done every year. It's just that Labour have died, and yeah. so it looks like they've come second. It's crazy. Yeah. it's But I suppose the one thing, I mean, and again, I, I, I say this to someone who lives in London, so I don't really know, but it doesn't feel like SNP are doing any of the kind of post-truth politics, or they're not doing quite as hard as we're getting kind of in Westminster Parliament. You know, through Brexit and you know, looking to the States with Trump, we're getting some really ludicrous, just unashamed lying going on. Well, okay, but I mean, they're not really doing radical politics either. Sure. Um, and, you know, if you look at the situation in Scotland, a lot of those people need radical solutions. People have incredible deprivation, and there's a lot of social problems in Scotland. There's also a lot of cultural problems in Scotland. A lot of it's really discussed. But, um, you know, they're... They're a lot better than what we've got down here. It's yeah. A disaster. And do you sort of think with... Because um, one of the things that genuinely terrifies me is the fact that people are, uh, like you were saying with the, with the independence vote, that people are just being swayed by absolute nonsense at the moment. Um, and you can, feel there's a, you can feel there's an anger against the system. Uh, and you can feel that in the States with like Sanders and, and going to Trump. But it, it just feels like it's all being misdirected horribly. Uh, you know, I, I well, it's very worrying. The tea party years ago, they were saying that like, the left needs to use that kind of energy in America because those are mm. people that are disaffected. They're disaffected with what their government does for them. They're disaffected with the economic prospects. It's the sort of people who should be getting sort of uh, dragged to the left and instead they're in this kind of insane, you know, anti-tax movement. And um, you know, there's the same sort of thing in Britain where you sort of feel some of those people. Particularly in Labour constituencies, would, would probably be open to a radical solution that wasn't based on racism yeah. and anti-immigrant bullshit. But 
it's almost like as well as a kind of puritanism on the left where you can't really say that where you can't really say well you know some of those people aren't racist they're just fucking being lied to you know yeah and some of them are racist yeah well yeah that's always the case <laughs> isn't it yeah but I've, I've met some leave voters who genuinely you know after hearing all the kind of uh, rhetoric were terrified that you know maybe we do need to maybe our borders are out of control because all the papers have said it now endlessly and all the news has said it you know and I think I'm always sort of aware that you know our jobs I can watch the news all day I can tweet things I can look at look at things on the internet and research but there are people that work in all day come home see one headline and go oh that sounds a bit scary you know totally man I mean I find that more and more as I get older that thing of like kind of knowing that I'm not smart yeah, yeah. <laughs> like and feeling slightly above some of these discussions. Do you know what I mean? So you're kind of like, I know I'm, I know I'm not clever. I sat maths higher. I totally fucked it into the <laughs> Like, there's obviously people naturally smarter than me everywhere, and yet you know I've got all this free time where I can just go. Well, how many people are immigrating? Well, how many people are in Britain? Well, you know, that whole thing of like, oh my god, they're going to let three thousand. Syrians and you're like are you do you believe in homeopathy because there's like 70 million people here you're never going to meet a Syrian yeah like 3,000 children in so unless you've got some well unless you're racist it's no problem but it's it's um that kind of the, the fact the fact that the media does kind of prey on those people I hate I hate when kind of people go the media but it is it does really feel like when you sit away from it it seems so obvious that the headlines are, are biased or are pushing towards a certain viewpoint, you know. But I mean, you can talk about it generically, but I get I can't have bored when people talk about elites and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah, me too. Yeah, um, you can you can say well, there's Corbyn with even if you take his worst polls, he's got what twenty five percent in the country or thirty percent. Yeah, yeah, probably Labour. Um, and there's almost no media that support him. I mean, what supports him like the Morning Star and yeah. the Guardian hate him. Um, you know, it's, it seems strange. And you had that in Scotland, you know, if you're getting 45% vote for independence and there was like one newspaper, the Sunday Herald. We did a discussion show after the referendum and some like media expert comes on, he's, you know, he's very sort of pro-union and he's kind of going, you know, there were some Guardian columnists that were for it. <laughs> like, the Guardian sells nothing in Scotland. Half the Guardian sales in Scotland are at Edinburgh University. Probably. Really? Yeah. And during like, the fringe, probably yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> and we'll be back with Frankie in a minute. But first, are you angry that you voted for Brexit, but Britain hasn't yet spent money separating our island from the landmass underneath and floating off into the Atlantic, away from Europe, to retain our sovereignty? Well, for just five very British pounds, we'll write your boss a letter stating that you really want to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with no holiday, sick pay or parental leave. You know, just like how it used to be in the good old days of the workhouses, back before those bloody Europeans meddled with our perfect British system. No more will you feel like you have to enjoy your weekend, when instead you can just never have a weekend ever again, like a true Brit. Just get your increasingly useless credit card ready and call 0800 Why Can't Things Be Shit Again right away. 
This week, the Mail on Sunday, a glorified toilet roll masquerading as a racist handout, celebrated the success of their campaign to reduce foreign aid spending, as the government has announced it will divert spending for traditional aid projects to use for national security instead. Yes, in typical male fashion, they love that instead of helping them foreign types, we're now happily going to fund more ways to kill them. Now, this is a pretty vile thing to be, you know, pleased about, isn't it, really? And with Priti Patel in charge of international development, despite us seeming to have struggled to develop basic human emotions, it does seem like this is the insular, aggressive direction that the UK is going in. Really, foreign aid seems like a good thing to someone like myself, who generally likes the idea of helping people unless they're Piers Morgan and they're on fire, in which case... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. No, I wouldn't even piss. And in theory, and some practice, foreign aid really is a good thing. The UK spends £12.2 billion a year on foreign aid, which is the UN-defined goal of 0.7% of a rich country's gross national product, uh, which is goes to developing countries to aid with medicine, dealing with famine and helping to develop infrastructure. You know, useful, actually helpful things. Only five other countries in the world, apart from the UK, give the full 0.7% amount, which are Sweden, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Norway and Denmark. Yeah, of course, it's some of the Scandi ones. And the US gives the most money at around £22.5 billion a year, though that is only 0.17% of its GDP. And bear in mind, that's probably quite good, considering most people there won't know where any of the countries it goes to actually are. About 40% of the budget goes to multilateral organisations, including the UN with the rest going to countries such as Pakistan, Ethiopia or, say, Afghanistan as some sort of really terrible, shitty sorry note that probably goes straight in the bin when it gets there. And this all sounds great and lovely and how wonderful that we help all those in need, but there is, of course, a but. And in this case, the Kim Kardashian is that while there are cases such as the group Medical Aid for Palestinians who use foreign aid to deliver trauma support, there are equally as many countries where the aid money goes straight to the government for them to distribute. And this can help fund a corrupt government or exacerbate local issues. In an interview back in 2005, a Kenyan economics expert asked for the UN to stop giving aid to Kenya as food donations were being unfairly divided to only tribes that politicians favoured. 
or sold on the black market undercutting local produce and therefore damaging the entire local economy. This week it's been discovered that an aid programme in Syria has been giving tens of millions of dollars to people associated with Assad, whose regime, as many know, has had many, many Syrians killed. The UN Fund gives aid to Syrian agriculture and state-owned fuel supplier, both of which have been sanctioned by the EU. And the World Health Organization, which gets foreign aid, has spent money supporting the National Syrian Blood Bank that is controlled by Assad's Defence Department and are likely only going to military casualties. So the only way it seems to be helping some people abroad is by assisting them in killing some other people abroad. It's like doing wars by proxy. The UK's foreign aid programme gives £498 million a year to contractors such as the Adam Smith International who go to developing countries and set up privatised water or privatised education system. There's nothing quite like aiding foreign countries with a bunch of private schools so that all those troubled, starving kids can also grow up with really awkward social skills. Nice one, guys. The UK only recently stopped giving aid to India on account of its growing economy, something that we've been doing for years and years on account of just assuming, well, we own their country some years ago. I guess it was essentially our embarrassing way of giving pocket money to the forcefully adopted child that went its own way after never really needing our help in the first place, and having always been a fully grown adult and not a child. When the government decided aid to India would end, there was much rejoicing from both UK and Indian politicians. Indian politicians thought the UK was patronising India by doing it, UK thought it was wasting money, and I suppose that does make sense on both sides. But the problem is that the wealth divide in India is so vast that while there may be more billionaires there than in Britain, the aid money we supplied went to those in poverty, and by 2020 they're going to be left without it. So really, Foreign aid could be a good thing if, as many have suggested, it was reformed and targeted properly to those that actually need it, working both with and outside of governments and working on local successes. But, and here's another big but, meaning that this section on foreign aid alone sounds like some sort of Sir Mix-a-Lot track. With many Conservatives, UKIP and the right-wing press calling for a huge reduction in foreign aid, it is unlikely that reform is going to happen. Instead, it seems like it's going to lead to the international development budget instead funding British troops tackling terrorism. Because that is the way that we help other countries over here in the UK. By helping put those who are suffering out of their misery with a few bullets and bombs. Still, on the plus side, if any of the foreign aid budget is used on services in the UK, then all those refugees fleeing wars we've helped to make worse will hopefully benefit from them when they get here. And I bet the Mail on Sunday and their readers will bloody love that. And now, back to Frankie. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about your. Because um, I remember I read your lecture that you gave at the Royal Festival Hall. Oh yeah. Uh, which was last year, wasn't it? I think. Yes. What a yeah. yeah, with yeah. Akali. Yeah, yeah. And you were, uh, you talked quite a lot about the how the, one of the, sort of the biggest problems we have, I think, in the Western world is that the UK and America think think of ourselves as exceptional and better than other countries, and that we're, we're the civilised ones. Um, do you think that attitude's ever going to change? It's just amazing, isn't it? I think if American, Americans could get rid of exceptionalism by just tasting food in any other country. <laughs> <laughs> you eat bread and you'll just get over the idea, you know. Um, I think it could, I think it will change, actually, because like things are going to get so much harder. Um, it's, I mean, that was specifically, I think, about what these types of exceptionalism are based on. And I think in Britain it's this colonial idea of we're civilised and other people aren't. And in America it's a kind of military 
I did Wheel 80's Force in other people one almost. I mean, that's probably a bit too specific. But, you know, you, you do see that thing of, like, you know, someone throwing stones at American soldiers in their country as terrorism. And, yeah. You know, uh, Americans shooting someone in another country is, is not as humanitarian. Humanitarianism yeah. sometimes. I don't really like the word, any word with human in it sort of disturbs me a bit. Because you know, <laughs> it's kind of like drawing a line around some people are human and some people aren't. So, you know, if you call yourself a humanist, well, here's the people who aren't humanists. Right. You know, it's. It's not quite right, is it? Because humanists come from a... Human, the humanists were originally like um, people who went and hunted out old books. Right, is that what they did? Yeah, so it's like they were doing this... So, bookists. Humanity. Yeah. yeah. There was, you know, literally like the name of the roads where they go between monasteries. Like right. Because it's a humanitarian someone that cares about people, isn't it? Or humanitarian, yeah. Yeah. But but even then, it's like... I find, I find like... We find ways, and particularly people in the life find ways to draw circles around themselves and their friends as being the good people. Yeah. I know like that's not really that's not really an attitude that's gonna get us anywhere. Yeah. You know, and if you if you're gonna hate people on the basis of um, they have different linguistic preferences from you, that's quite a big one in comedy, you know. Yeah. You meet people from different countries even, different cultures. You know, in some countries it's okay to say your American comics say back a lot and then you wouldn't dare say that here. Yeah. But if we're going to hate those people based on that, and if, if, if you keep drawing circles around yourself and your friend, it's, they're only going to get smaller. You know, it eventually ends up with you in there as the, the moral centre of the universe. And I really distrust this idea of like um, some of the most privileged people in our society uh, also believe that they are some of the only moral people in the society. Right. You know, and that's true of activists, and that's true of comics, and that's true. Yeah. All kinds of, and you're kind of like, hey, that can't be true. <laughs> For two seconds, yeah. it can't be true. Surely, if you understand anything about privilege, or... yeah. It's it, but I always think it's more in the whole kind of because uh, everything feels so divisive now. You're either that group or that group. You either believe in this or you believe in that. And and so many people I know are far more nuanced than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not everyone. There are some people that are definitely them, Yeah. So like and like. If you get them on a public forum, or you, you had an argument with them on Twitter mm. or whatever, uh, or if, even if they were in public, they go, oh, they should never, you know, it's terrible that, you know, Bill Burr says fag or something, right? And then, like, um, in private, they'll go, oh, yeah, I can see that, you know, maybe it came from Boston. You know, and you're sort yeah. of like, well, there's this whole kind of, like, slightly more humane, slightly more accepting uh, scientists that we've got to kind of cast aside because we're all sort of political entities mm. in a way you know i only mention this because i was watching that discussion on paul Prevenza's show the other day i've never right. seen this from years and years ago but they're all talking about some some joke that someone did that was supposed to be homophobic but it's those things i always think if you've not heard the thing that's another thing. Yeah, it's context. Like, isn't I don't see the exact thing. I don't know what the fuck's going on. Because maybe it's like, you know, maybe there's something that justified it. You know? but, but you've, yeah, because you, you've had loads of stuff taken out of context mm. over the years. Totally. But, but do you think, I mean, I think I think it's very hard as well in that there's there's not a variety of things shown on television anymore. There's not a variety of views shown on television anymore. I mean, you're saying... Um, not only in the press do they ignore views, but also on TV, where you have one climate change denier versus one climate change scientist saying it's happening, whereas the reality is it's ninety-nine scientists against one or whatever. You know, um, I mean, that seems to be a much bigger problem that we're not, we're just not seeing a wide range of views, so people can't 
see the context that things are coming from. Probably, I mean, there's like various things that the idea of like how media just doesn't work for that. You know, so it can't work for that. It's a bit called something like four arguments against television or something. It's about that. It's about it's kind of like a flattening medium that's based around ideas of like concision and consensus and stuff like that. And so it means that you know you are going to get someone to debate whether climate change is happening because they always want conflict and. Um, they're going to have to do it in a really short period of time, no matter how important it is. Yeah. It's still going to be like three minutes fifty at the end of the news night, right? Yeah. And you're just like, that is innately ridiculous. There's not really much we can do about that. But I also accept that people get totally offended by me in context. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all, they're not all wrong. Yeah, but it's... But then, but then you're not. I mean, I, again, that's the kind of the world that's changing now, and that everything you say will end up. I mean, this podcast, who knows what they could snip it up and make you sound like. But you know, every, everything ends up out there now because everyone's got cameras and everyone's got. I remember I got one. It was really heartbreaking. It was like I had a joke, and it was about Viagra and how, it, like, by the time Viagra takes effect, I find the woman has managed to wriggle free. And I don't know exactly what of it, right? right? But it was like after all of the jokes about being overweight and being sexually incapable and sort of like your desires and being like essentially ridiculous. That was very sort of um, a very kind of negative joke about my own kind of libido and right. the horror of the horror of me kind of thing. It was obviously a joke about a bad bloke yeah. who can't get it up, you know, and then it was like taken out of context in some BBC Two show about sexism or something and you're like I can remember how long it took me to back work that job to write the three things in front of it or whatever to make sure it didn't make sound sure it didn't so it couldn't sound like that and that's like a month's work to get three good jokes about a subject that you're yeah you've got fuck all on and then and then it's just literally some researcher will have pulled out <laughs> and the presenter won't even have seen it and they'll show it to two talking heads who won't even have seen it and they'll talk about it and you're just like, this is literally a sort of machine now. Yeah. Do you ever find with with your like political jokes or your political columns, are you ever concerned about people taking those out of context and suddenly deciding that you have a specific opinion on something? Or... They do. So does yeah, that happen? I mean, I had that BBC Trust with jokes about Israel and stuff like that. Right. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, that's always going to happen. But I mean, it's. I find it's... And we have a culture that goes very easy on people corrupting context and it goes very easy on kind of propaganda. So we're, we're sort of trying to propagandise to ourselves. People talk openly about how do we find the right narrative. For, we even did a bit of it there with Corbyn, you know, sort of going, um, we, we all naturally think, how do we counter their propaganda with our propaganda? Yeah. And that's wrong, do you know what I mean? Um, you know, you think, we live in a society where someone goes, if someone, like, say, one of Got, got beaten in the Olympics and said that I was cheated there, right? Mm. Uh, I was cheated. Uh, or if they say I felt cheated or I feel cheated, right? that's obviously completely different things. Yeah. Well, you can imagine what headline the papers when going to call it. Cheated, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, you know, in the face of the person, I bet I'm cheat. And, like, then everybody's talking about talk radio, I called him a cheat. And, like, five years later, they've been asked, why do you call that guy a cheat? And, yeah. You know, and that's, like, almost nobody sees anything wrong with that from the the lowest consumer of media to the to yes. producers. The, the one I always found amazing was that a few years ago and they kept saying that Ed Miliband has stabbed his brother in the back. Mm-hmm. And you thought, it was a, how does no one remember? It was a democratic election where he won. Is that stabbing? I mean, I, I've hit my brother in the face. That's definitely worse than beating him in the election. It looked like he'd hit his brother in the 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's such a bizarre thing. I mean, um also do you find uh now because I said you sort of, you know, having worked with you now, you, you, you put in more and more politics in yourself. Are you finding it harder the more ridiculous politics is? Because there's moments like I'm looking at Trump going, I can't just say what he says because that's, you know, his comments are so ludicrous. Sure, he'll be but really then, bad for comedy. Man, that's it, it's yeah. It's just going to be so hard, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, it was like Bush. There was a while where people were just saying, Bush did this, and everyone would laugh, and you go, yeah, he's just done that. You haven't written a joke. This is, you know, it's not... <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't know. I just think it's, it's, it's more like people don't have enough information. That makes it harder for comedians because part of the thing is you always try to introduce information when they need it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I go, oh, there was a thing where that bombing campaign we supported in Syria killed 85 civilians. So you've got to introduce them to that because they've not made the links and the newspapers aren't making the links for them. So they'll go, that was an American bombing campaign. And you're like, that's yeah. kind of what we're part of. I was, but that's interesting you say because I always think as well with, with with yourself like there there aren't well I don't I never think there are enough comics doing politics but obviously it's up to people's agenda what what they want to talk about on stage but I think there are uh, a handful of political comics probably including myself that often preach the converted I think our audiences are probably expecting it sure. I think definitely well definitely probably when you uh, last couple of years you must have had a certain percentage of your audience that weren't expecting politics maybe oh, if they came from Mock the Week it's I mean, yeah. like, they'd much rather, even tonight, they'd much rather hear about Wayne Rooney or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, you've just kind of got to get your teeth and sort of, you can use that against them sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> like, but I think, isn't it important? I think that's more important than, you know, like, for example, if I'm just doing a, a gig to a room full of people that are expecting or already agree with me, that's a, you know, I'm not really help doing anything. But I always had a thing where, like, on those shows that I was doing, like, I was sort of begging them not to do Wayne Rooney and sort of begging them not to mm. do the Olympics quite a lot of the time, Yeah. And to be fair. Um, yeah, I think you remember, uh, you told me once about one of the panel shows where you were trying to write something about one of the wars and they wanted you to do Olympics, even though it had been finished weeks before. Yeah, it was that Rebecca Adlin joke. Yeah, that I was had, it, yeah. That was based on the Olympics is finished and they wanted to do a joke about the plane coming back to the country that were around it. I just like, please don't do this. And eventually they just throw up a picture and go, just say whatever you want. <laughs> like, eight years later, you're still getting interviewed about this joke about somebody who's retired. Wow. <laughs> like, that was her first race or her first Olympics over. And then she, like, retired and did some interviews somewhere. And someone was getting annoyed about it. And just like, man, she's, she, she stopped swimming. And this is like, yeah. who cares? Whereas the wars are still going on that you <laughs> yeah. weren't allowed to talk about. Literally, literally, it's yeah. Afghanistan. That's good. But then, but then, didn't you? Or I suppose the thing is uh, with the nature of media. If you said I told this joke because I wasn't allowed to say this, they'd probably not report that bit. Or oh right, yeah. It's, well, they just have very, um, they just have very interesting ways of moving it on. Sure. And and sort of working around you if you do that. Mm. Um, and it's very hard to do that. I mean, I remember the first one of the first shows I started out on was my week. But, um, uh, you know, some stupid story came out. I said, I don't even know why we're talking about this in the week that, and the presenter just went, well, okay, move on to the next one then. And just moved right. on to the next bit, and you're like, yeah, that's so <laughs> exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. not going to talk about, you know, the world's biggest jumbo jet, then uh, some, someone else will. We'll get monkeys who'll dance for longer. <laughs> I would watch that show. Mm -hmm. Sounds brilliant. Um, 
but then it, it, so do you then think and, and I, I always I should sort of uh, uh, preempt this by saying that I, I get annoyed with uh, when people kind of add more context to stand up than, than they need to you know I sometimes feel that like we're under yes. more scrutiny than politicians sometimes oh. but um, do you think it's important then because you've got your own audiences now who hear the words exactly as they come from your face you know you can do these big tours and entertain audiences do you think then that comedy is important in being able to relay information properly do you think it's a useful it's tool for vital it? i think it's vital this is one of the remember rage hunter used to finish by going them you know keep supporting local comedy it's like the last place in the country where you'll get to hear the truth <laughs> like, wow. yeah, it's like i can remember like when they were doing the was it grand invasion of iraq i think so i was doing john Blows in glasgow which is obviously a shithouse full of yeah. And, uh, I did it once and never again. It was me, Glenn Will, and uh, someone else who was really good. But all doing like anti war stuff, we're all doing this, just saying this is happening, this isn't happening. And it was like a whole bill of that. And you could tell people, like, they've not seen this anywhere. All they've seen is like smart missile footage and, you know, BBC News footage. And, and they're just like, holy shit, man. And you're like, this is like a really important, you know, night for these people and a corrective. I think it could definitely be that. So it needs to, yeah, I, I guess then how do you get it out to people unless they're coming to gigs? Yeah, you can. Yeah. It's like, it's Baudrillard, isn't it? It's that whole thing of like, I think we, we're culture, right? We're part of culture, comedy, theatre, things like that. And we're kind of created originally to resist civilization, to resist institutional mm. civilization. Right? And, and there's a whole series that maybe this happened originally with France and Germany. You know, the French were trying to build this whole kind of like um, civilization through institutions, and the Germans were trying to resist it through um, culture. Right? And that's kind of what culture I mean. But I think um, comedy is very much part of that, very much part of that resistance to the to the normal narrative, right? Mm. And it gets taken into institutions. So when you try and broaden the appeal, you kind of go into BBC or whatever. And the reason, like, Live at the Apollo or whatever, kind of capture the atmosphere of a comedy club is the comedy club is kind of set up in resistance right. to Live at the Apollo, you know? And yeah. when you go to comedy clubs, one of the things people talk about is, you know, the media, the television, the news, uh, the official narrative. Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of a corrective to that at its best. And that's why they can never really quite get it. I, um, I went to see um, Harry Belafonte do a talk a couple of years ago at the Royal Festival Hall, uh, which was incredible. But I remember uh, audience member saying, you know, the Arts Council funding's being cut here. What would you think about that? And he just made this amazing statement about how the arts is the gateway to truth. It's how people interpret things. And if you take that away, they only see the narrative that the government wants you to see or that the people in charge want you to see. So I thought it was very interesting. I mean, I think that's true. And I think... Um, at the same time, we sometimes get caught up in a bit of a bubble. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Where we think, you know, without art, nothing means anything. Do you know what I mean? Which is tremendously sort of patronising. Yeah. Um, and it also usually relies on, relies on quite a narrow definition of art. So we tend to think about it as creative um, fuckery that we get involved <laughs> in. There's a lot of things in art. So if you're, um, like, where, where do you go for, um, for stories and news then? Do you still just read The Intercept? The Intercept, right? Yeah. What's that? Uh, it's like Glenn Greenwald, Scam's site. Right. Um, it's like 
it's not it's not that regular, but it's just stories about um, hard politics stuff, you know, political corruption, that kind of thing. Uh, Middle East. Um, Barrett Brown writes on there. Do you read him? Really great. No. He's really great. He's like this guy. He's like a hacker. And he's not really. He's, he kind of got done and he's in jail. Um, but he's this fantastic writer. It's like P.G. Woodhouse, but sort of about how terrible the American commentariat is. It's right. lovely steam. He's got this book. You can just get the book on PDF. It's called The Decline of American Competence. And he just goes through like four or five like, big columnists just pointing out how everything they see is bollocks. Right, that sounds brilliant. It's fucking brilliant. So is the Incept a website, is it? Or is it a podcast? Yeah, right. Look at Al Jazeera sometimes. Look at the BBC. I really hate myself for it, though, because it's just like that. So what is this? Fucking recipes and... You know, it's just really got magazined now into some kind of real horror show. The the website, um, I read the Guardian website as well. Even though I find myself politically kind of starting to diverge quite a bit. Yeah. Not quite a bit. Probably actually, it's weird, isn't it? Because I think sometimes those people think that you would be right on the outside alternative flank of them, and you're like, I'm not really. I'm actually like, I'm actually the same as you, but from a different class. Yeah. I'm from a different country, or originally from a different class, from an upper class. Yeah, it's it's amazing how sometimes I feel like the Guardian almost parodies itself. You know, some of the headlines or some of the opinion pieces in it, where <laughs> I just think no one cares about this. Really, this is it's a not definition of what people don't. Yeah, care. yeah. It's yeah. interesting that I remember was just talking about class. And it's kind of going, are you still working class? It's like upper class. You know, being middle class is worrying about your mortgage, and being upper class is having a lot of free time. I just like the one thing I really found in life: like free time, people are a lot happier. People are yeah. poor, stressed, and they don't need to be. That's interesting. God, does that mean I'm upper class? I've got far too much free time, man. Really? Well, I mean, I say that. I'm always writing and things, but I definitely go on Twitter too much. That's probably upper class, isn't it? Yeah, there you go. Good. Interesting. Um, All right, well, last question then. Uh, What's uh, what's your plan for the end of the world? How are you going to get through it? I'm going to take as many people out before the end as possible. I want to rob some people at the finish line. You know know the way Dom Deloitte, or uh, what's he called? Fucking um, Cannonball Run. I can't remember uh, his name. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen I saw it years ago. I haven't. Yeah. Uh, I saw it as a kid. Fuck. I've got, so I Google it and then something. edit it in. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we cheat. Mark Reynolds. Oh. At the end yeah, of, you know, like at the end of the Cannibal Run, uh, Dom Delweese is run through, and Dom, uh, Burt Reynolds just jumps on everybody that's kind of in the trailing pack and just kind of pulls them over before the finish line, about 20 people. That's, that's what I want to do, just see a lot of people from, like a lot of Americans hopefully from not seeing the rapture, you know, just <laughs> fucking go and set off some dirty bomb, dirty bomb doesn't exist, but fuck it. Brilliant. Cool, so, perfect. Wait, we can't see that, because I'm going to have to try and get into America at some point. <laughs> I'm going to go there and set off a fucking, I clearly don't want to commit a terrorist atrocity in America. Um, yeah, I think I'll win. I think I'll kill myself. Oh, fair enough. Uh, yeah, without going. Right, nice. I think that, yeah, no one will accuse you of uh, going to terror. Yeah, terrible. Terrible. yeah, you could have picked a country you're never going to visit. I myself while I'm flying a fucking jumbo jet. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Frankie has more warm updates at the Pleasance Theatre in Islington and Leicester Square Theatre through September and October. And I think there are a few tickets left for some of them. Uh, you can find all the dates at frankieboyle.com. And his US election postmortem is going to be on the BBC iPlayer in November. So do check that out. I reckon it's going to be brilliant. Um, I hope you enjoyed that and I'd love to hear your views on whether you're happy to hear the odd chat with other political comedians to kind of break up the more specifically political interviews um, and as always I'd really love to hear if you have any recommendations of who I should talk to or what subject areas I should try and find an interviewee to talk about and you can drop me a line as always by the Facebook group uh, the at Parpol Bro Twitter account or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com uh, next week is columnist, campaigner and author of Stitched Up, Tansy Hoskins, on the politics of the fashion industry. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing her in a cafe, so expect the excuses, excuses section to go on for about four days. Brilliant. The question of the week returns. Last week, former head of UKIP and the love child of someone's big sneeze and a 70s racist sitcom, Nigel Farage, went to America and shared a platform with US presidential candidate and hairy satsuma, Donald Trump. No, I'm not sure which one could be accused more of sharing a platform with an extremist either. And yes, Farage did have a go at Obama for coming to the UK and advising on Brexit back in the July. But let's face it, Farage isn't known for sticking to his principles, which is why him and Trump probably got on great guns. Personally, I'm still waiting for the moment all of Trump's supporters realise Nigel Farage is an immigrant in the US and it all kicks off. But until then, I asked you out there, the people, because that's democracy, uh, what TV shows or formats would suit the Trump-Farage double act of disgust? And oh, 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 you did reply. Right, Khan Johnson, and this one's all in the spelling, went for a place in the country. Very nice. Uh, Graham Tate sent us in a couple. These are both very good. Uh, Minority Deport, brilliant. And Xenophobia Warrior Princess. Uh, Matt Hoss uh, says that they'd probably fit nicely to host the Oscars. Great work, Matt. Um, Philip Alexander, uh, this is one of my favourites. Uh, Everybody Loves Ray Sism. Perfect. Um, Willard Foxton, uh, he's he sent loads now, so I'm going to be very picky with these Willard ones. Uh, he sent some that have double meanings, such as Big Brother and Biggest Losers. Some that he says are just rude, including Cunt Down and Strictly Come Twatting and Great British Racist Off, and then Surreal Nightmares, where he's put Wheel of Farage and Love Island. The latter making me do a little sick in my mouth. Uh, Brendan Dodds says the Big Burke Fest, lovely. Um, at Princess of VP on Twitter says pointless because they both literally are. Uh, All Red Gaming One says wankity wank, or is that too crude? Uh, Bobador says more dumb than wise. Very nice, as long as that wasn't shown every single Christmas. Um, Rainy 101, the generation blame. In brackets, the immigrants. Uh, Daniel Woodrow goes for bigot brother. Very nice. Um, Al Vim says, do you remember the odd couple? Yeah. Well, that, but with more sharks. Perfect. Um, Fluff Logic says, wheel of fortunately not in power. Don't jinx us, Fluff Logic. They're not in power yet. Oh, God. Let's all keep our fingers crossed. Um, and also asked, has anyone done Great British Hate Off? You have Fluff Logic. Um, one Raffs, uh, who I love following on Twitter, do check out at one, one RAF said, he's brilliant. Um, he said, Top Gear, but they only review Second World War era tanks, the, what won the war. Um, which, the thing is, that would be that would be perfect for them, but then what would right-wing bloggers protest in if they got fired from hosting it? Curious. Uh, Bruce B underscore UK says the golden shot hashtag wishful thinking Jacob Johansson says uh, X-Files because they'd both be great at investigating alien invasions 
Budgie says Pride and Prejudice. I think we should probably stick the word national in front of that one. Uh, Kate Webb says Cannon and Ball. Ideally, both of them being fired from one. Uh, Liam Riley says The Far Trump Saga, never ending. Sam Phillips. Uh, 13 goes for universally challenged I really like this idea I'd like to see this on TV two teams competing to come up with the most unintelligent statement possible Paxman stays as host I worry that there'd be too many contenders to fill up teams we'd need several series for that to work Uh, and at Bobador who did one earlier uh, went for films and said hate actually lovely work everyone I think despite the fact they've probably not got hopefully not got political careers ahead of them for too much longer they've definitely got a future in the media Brexit fallout Brexit fallout Brexit fallout okay a quick Brexit fallout for this week's show despite a foreseeable Brexit gaining speed like a boulder rolling down a hill towards us a bunch of geologists our curiosity meaning that we just keep looking at it and studying it rather than moving out of the way Does that analogy work? No? Good. Then it's more apt for Brexit than a thought. So, according to The Telegraph, Theresa May has been told by government lawyers that she doesn't need parliamentary approval to trigger Article 50, the procedure that starts at a two-year countdown to leaving the EU. Which is kind of hilarious in a way, because part of the anger against the EU and the reason to leave was unelected bureaucrats making decisions we have no say in. Yet here we are, with a Prime Minister no one voted for about to make a major decision for the UK without any other MPs getting a say. Nice one guys, taking back control. Several MPs have started a legal challenge against this happening which will take place in October so it's going to be delayed till then either way. And there is still the issue of whether Article 50 can be triggered at all anyway until the PM has a mandate to leave the single market which we still don't have because still no one has a clue what they want. And in amongst all this, the German Vice-Chancellor and owner of a name that makes him sound like a Rebel Alliance A-Wing pilot, Sigmar Gabriel, says that Brexit could send the EU down the drain, an event that I guess would lead to some serious horrible clogging. I mean, imagine having to plunger that out. It's bad enough when I've eaten Brussels. Ha! A poo joke. Gabriel thinks the UK can't have the nice things from Europe, which I presume are cheese and wine, without taking any responsibility. You know, like not eating so much cheese and wine that you then sick it up, pretty much like my last trip to Paris. And lastly, but not leastly, Home Secretary Amber Rudd, a woman who once referred to nuclear power stations as beautiful and so presumably is on some sort of watch list for possible enemies of Superman, Amber Rudd is meeting the French Home Secretary this week to discuss keeping the Latouquet Agreement keeping border checks at Calais. They, it looks like they've come to some sort of agreement for that to happen, but there is growing support in France to end the agreement and just let the UK have all the border controls at Dover instead, which, having been to Dover, I'm pretty sure they'd love that. It's not just the cliffs that are majorly white. So, uh, the Brexit vote, a vote against not having control, a vote against too much immigration, now looks like it's given the UK even less democratic control and will result in even more immigration. I'm starting to wonder if they should just change the dictionary definition of a Pyrrhic victory to just a picture of Boris Johnson's face the morning he announced the result. Though, I'm pretty sure that would just result in less dictionaries being bought, and let's face it, the English-French ones are probably already in trouble. And that's it for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, thanks again to Mark Struthers for his editing magic. Do check out his Radio Stockton Heath podcast on Podbean. It is great. Uh, also to Matt Hoss for helping with admin and all of you chumps for listening. Uh, do reviewers on iTunes drop me a line on Twitter at Parpolbro, uh, Facebook on the Parpolbro group or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, embrace the good old days when times were great and send round a secret message in a loaf of Hovis delivered by a child on a bike with a flat cap and an oddly cheery disposition despite his obviously shit job and terrible, terrible life. 
And please do check out my stand-up special, The World's Full of Idiots, Let's Live in Space, uh, at my website, tinanddoyab.co.uk, because if enough of you buy it, I might be able to afford a cold meal on a hot day. I'm going to be back next week with more vague attempts at making you laugh at the world instead of crying. And this week's show was brought to you by whatever number and letters you like. I mean, what, what number of letters would you like? Which ones? Which ones? Which ones? Go on, go on, go on. No, no, you can't have those ones. No. In fact, I don't remember ever saying you could choose numbers or letters. Go back to your hole. And that, my friends, is British democracy. Are you upset that despite having voted Brexit, we haven't immediately gone to war with every single European country to prove that British people are the only ones who bloody well deserve to live on this planet? Well, mop your brow with that Union Jack tea towel you obviously own and worry no more. Because for just 20 of your very British pounds, we'll arrive in your area and hang a minor criminal or someone you think looks like a minor criminal. You know, just like they used to do in the good old days when Britain was Britain and children could smoke. Just get your wheelbarrows of almost completely defunct pound coins ready and call 0800 I'm scared to leave my village right away. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.